for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 20. On Friday night, we were together for a Good Friday, and we looked at the crucifixion account from the 19th chapter of John. So I thought it only appropriate for us to complete John's account of the empty tomb in chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to pose a question this morning as we talk about the resurrection. Have you ever experienced a life-changing moment in your life? I mean, a life-changing kind of moment, right? I tell you, I've got a number of them, and, and I won't share them all with you today, but I want to just share a few of them with you. I, I, one of my first life-changing moments came in seventh grade. Seventh grade registration, to be exact. We were so pumped, and when I say we, I'm sure it was everybody, but I mean specifically the two or three guys that I was standing in line with. I mean, we were so unique, you know. We had like our red polo knit shirt on, draped in our blue polo button-down, with an accessorized bandana not squarely tied in the middle and draped around our neck, also known as the South Arkansas Ascot. Levi's 501 button-down, are you ready? Here comes red tab. Do not bring home the orange tab, mother, right? Tight-rolled, that's important, with high-top Reebok sneakers. So much social, so little time. That, I mean, it was a life-changing moment for me as we still, I can still see me standing there in line to register for seventh grade and how important that was. Not every life-changing moment is necessarily for the good, right? <clears throat> I'll tell you another life-changing moment, becoming a little more serious here, was the first time I held my children. I, I, I remember both of those times today as if it had just occurred. When I held my son... Three years later when I held my daughter. As a matter of fact, about three years ago, we took a team to Guatemala on a mission trip. And if you don't know this, both of my children are adopted. My daughter is adopted from Guatemala. And as we came in that night, we were late arriving in Guatemala City. And the one thing you don't do in Guatemala other than drink the water is you don't travel at night. Or you're like a moving target. White people traveling at night, get them. You know, it's that, that kind of thing. Actually, gringos is what they would say. So our host had uh, scheduled a motel room uh, for us to spend the night in, and we would get up the next day and travel to our site about four and a half hours away. Well, I didn't think anything about it, and, and we arrived at the motel that night, and we got off the bus, we were exhausted, we walked into the motel, and almost immediately as I turned the corner, I, I began to sense something familiar, and all of a sudden I saw a brown leather couch. And I broke. It just stopped me in my tracks. Because it was on that couch about 11 years earlier that I'd first held my daughter. 
for the first time. I just can't tell you how powerful that moment was for me 11 years later, just remembering that. One more, and then I'll move on. When I stood at the front of a church on the altar, the church filled with hundreds of people and dimly lit except for the halo of light that surrounded the altar. And then this girl turned the corner at the back of the aisle in a white dress. And she came to the altar and said, yes. My life was forever changed when my wife married me. Those are life-changing moments for me, friends. And as sweet and as precious as those are, they don't really compare to the moment in the summer after my sophomore year when at the age of 16, about 3.30 in the morning after several hours of really arguing and debating with God, I got down on my knees, a dark room, in silence. And just said, God, I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired of controlling my life and messing everything up. And when I get a victory, it not being enough. And so that night in the silence of my room, I submitted my life to Christ. And I asked Him to save me. And I asked Him to be my Lord and Savior. Listen, that moment changed my life like no other moment. And because of that moment, every other life-changing moment for me has been sweeter and even more powerful. I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced the changing power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in your life? You see, the Bible calls what I experienced on that night being made alive unto God. That's what the Bible says, is that the Spirit comes in and makes us alive unto God. And that moment is made possible because of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' death did not make that moment possible. There are many other things that Jesus' death did for us, but His resurrection made the moment of life a reality by faith. In him. You see, the simple statement is true that Jesus' resurrection changes everything about life by giving true life. Jesus' resurrection changes everything about life by giving true life. And that's what I want us to look at today. I, I want us to look in John chapter 20, and I just want us to take a look at five changes that the resurrection brings. For us, five changes that the resurrection empowers for us. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of John 20. And John records now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, 
and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. I want to show you five changes that the resurrection makes from the 20th chapter of the Gospel of John. And the first change I want you to see today that the resurrection makes is this. Death is not the final word. Death is not the final word. Mary rushes to the tomb early while visibility is still very skewed by darkness. And when she sees the stone rolled away, she rushes to get the other disciples because the body of Jesus is not in the tomb. And so Peter and John run to the tomb and John outruns him. I love the way John inserts that right there. He outruns Peter to the tomb, but he stops at the threshold because John is such a contemplative, introspection kind of person that he wants to look and kind of behold what is there. And he's taking it all in. But you know Peter, Peter never stopped to think about anything before he said it or did it and he dove right in beyond John into the tomb and right over the tomb bed itself he's looking and all he sees are the cloths but then the face cloth is folded and set to the side what a powerful moment but as of yet an unexplained one you see the evidence presented itself not just that the burial cloths were present, but that Jesus had folded the facial cloth and placed it away. Why do you think he did that? I think he did that for one reason. He wasn't going to need it ever again. That poor cloth had one use in life, and it would never be needed again. Right? I don't feel sorry for the cloth. I don't want you to either. They didn't fully understand, but one thing was clear. Jesus was not in the grave. The empty tomb testifies to us today, friends, that the empty tomb, the grave, is not the final word. What word do I mean when I say the final word? You know what word I'm talking about. It's that word that we talk about in imagery where uh, it's the word that, that has the last word, the, the, the winning word, the one that is right, you know, the one that we always want to have. And in this life, death always seems to have the last word or the final act of life. But the word or the evidence, rather, of the empty tomb testifies to something completely different. When Peter and John saw the empty tomb, John records this, he saw and believed. He hadn't worked all of his theology out yet, but he knew at that moment, everything changes from here. You see, they knew what the scriptures had said in Psalm 16.10 when the psalmist testifies, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. But understanding its full meaning was illuminated by the word of the empty tomb that testified to its full meaning that it meant he would rise from the grave and the tomb or death itself would not have the last word over the Lord Jesus. Friends, it is possible to be here today. It is possible to know some of the Bible. It is possible to have a command of all of the Bible and still miss what it means for your life. The question I want to begin with today is this. Is that you? 
you feel comfortable. Not arrogantly so, but just comfortable, even confident in what you know about the Bible, what you know about God because of the Bible. And what I want you to see today is that even John and Peter, listen, John was known as the closest friend Jesus ever walked with on the face of this earth. He knew more about Jesus than likely any other has ever known about the man Jesus. And yet he didn't get it until the empty tomb pierced the darkness of his understanding. What I want you to know today as we begin into this journey through John 20 and talking about how the resurrection changes everything is that whatever your level of knowledge or understanding about the Bible, that's not the end game. It's not the final word for you. That Christ has come that you might know Him and not just about Him. And that's what the empty tomb does for us, friends. If the grave can't hold Jesus, though, we've got to ask this. Who else can the grave not hold? If the grave can't hold Jesus, I mean, aren't you just a little interested to ask the question, well, if it's possible that death doesn't win, how is it probable that it won't win? Let me tell you a story about a man by the name of Harry Houdini. You know who Houdini is? It's not just a funk song of the 80s. Right? I mean, that's in my era, that's who he was. Harry Houdini was the greatest escape artist of all times. He wowed and awed crowds his entire life. Now, he passed away in 1926, so that explains why most of us wouldn't have heard of him. But he could escape from anything. They would put him in shackles and in ropes. A few minutes, he was escaped. They would put him in a jail cell in a couple of hours. Harry's gone. Where's Harry? He's escaped. They put him in a casket and wrapped it in chains, but Harry didn't stay in the casket. They put him in a tank, a welded tank. They could not hold Harry. I mean, this this is getting a little irritating, right? They put him uh, uh, in in a, a confined space and then cast him into water. But you know what? Harry was not held by that. He was the greatest escape artist of all times. And this question of whether or not death would have the final word in his life haunted him too. Because he was human. And so he began to experiment in some things like speaking to spirits in the afterlife and necromancing and some things of, of, of working with uh, um, uh, those things that supposedly communicate with spirits in the afterlife. And so he struck a deal with his wife. He said, I want to cheat death. And here's how I'm going to do it. Once I die... Every birthday after that, I want you to focus all of your energy and all of your mind and heart upon me and our relationship. I want you to sit down at the table, put a picture on the table of me, and then light a candle and focus to listen for me so that I can speak to you. And so when he passed away in 1926, his next birthday, his wife came to the table. She sat down with a picture of him, lit a candle, focused all of her heart and her mind, and listened for Harry. You know who didn't show up? Harry. The second year, she did the same thing. Harry didn't show up. She did this for 10 years, and on the 10th anniversary 
uh, of his birthday after his death, she sat down at the table, she put his picture there, lit a candle, and with all of her might, she focused on their relationship. Every good memory she could remember, she would focus and, and just kind of recount the details of it. But Harry never showed up. So after the 10th anniversary of his death, she extinguished the candle, threw them away, and never pulled them back out. Because the greatest escape artist of all times could not cheat death. But you know there are those who do cheat death, right? Paul tells us in Romans 6, verse 5, listen to his words and what he says. For if we have been united with him, talking about Jesus, in a death like his... Listen to this. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. You see, friends, there's really no question about who the grave cannot hold. The grave could not hold Christ Jesus. And the grave cannot hold any who by faith are united with Him. Paul says with certainty this is so. The resurrection declares that death is not the final word for all who trust in Jesus. Next we see that Jesus' resurrection changes everything because, hear me, separation from God that sin caused is not ultimate. Look with me beginning in verse 11 of John 20. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away... Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said, these things to her. Friends, the resurrection changes everything. And the second change we see here is that separation from God that's caused by sin is not ultimate. When Peter and John went back to the house, they're distraught. But Mary stayed. Why? Because she loved Jesus deeply. And she brought spices to anoint the body for burial properly because there was not time on the night that he was crucified. But when she got there, her Lord was gone and she had been denied that one act of love, that one act of service that she wanted to grant to him. And then Jesus appears to her, but she doesn't recognize him at first. And she makes that one last request. And then Jesus responds to her by 
calling her name. And in an instant, she knows who it is. And you can only imagine not only the flood of emotion, but the flood of ideas and the thoughts that rushed back into her head. And and so Jesus instructs her in something that can be a little confusing to us. But instead of of saying, hey, don't, don't hug me right now. It's not that Jesus was refusing her. But what Jesus is instructing her in is that there would be a new way to relate to him. And though it's a little hard for us to understand what John does is he demonstrates that there's a distinction with Jesus from when he was on the earth and after he came out of the empty tomb. Yes, he was your teacher, but there would be a new way. Intellect was not the highest glory that Jesus had come to give. Salvation was at hand in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so Mary returned to testify to the disciples that she had seen the Lord. You see, friends, Mary was was reeling in the separation that sin had caused with Jesus. Jesus died because of our sin. Jesus was crucified because there was no other spotless lamb who could be crucified. And the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ caused a severe separation, not only physically, but emotionally and even relationally, that Mary and all of the other disciples were distraught over. Genesis 3 tells us how sin separates people from God. And that Jesus' death was caused because of sin and this literal separation that it had created among him and his disciples. But when Jesus rises from the grave, friends, he conquers sin. Then when he appears to Mary, he tells her that there's a new way of relating to him. There's a new purpose in relating to him. And you see, what was most important to Mary, though, was simply that the separation from Jesus was not ultimate. Mary wasn't concerned to grow her intellect at that moment. Teach me something else so I can know whether I want to believe it or not. Mary was just glad Jesus was back, right? Because the relationship is what mattered to her most. And she realized that even though she had watched him die, the separation from his death was not ultimate. Friends, Jesus' resurrection overcame the separation that sin caused to bring a new relationship with God through him. That's what the resurrection is all about. And separation from God because of sin is eternal. But because Jesus conquered sin and overcame sin's separation in Jesus, all who believe overcome sin's separation so that they might enjoy life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You see, the resurrection declares that separation from God because of sin is not ultimate and praise God it's not Jesus comes back to us there's a third change that is revealed in John chapter 20 and if you would look with me beginning in verse 19 and I want us to see that the resurrection makes a change for life that life's meaning and purpose does not remain unknown verse 19 on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is 
withheld. Now, there's a couple of reasons this passage of Scripture is a bit challenging to us. Because in one instant, you're reading about the resurrection, and in the next instance, Jesus has already dropped the Great Commission. I thought we were celebrating Easter. I didn't know we were trying to live out mission. But listen, friends, when the resurrection occurs, it changes everything. And life now has new meaning and new purpose, and that purpose is the mission of God's kingdom in the world. You cannot separate salvation from mission. When God saves you, he sends you to be a faithful witness in the world. And this is the radical change that we see in the resurrection. The disciples found themselves in a hard and scary place. You see, life had seemed so much simpler and made so much more sense only seven days earlier. When, when everyone was waving palm branches and singing Hosanna as Jesus entered the city, they did it with him. But the last cry of crucify him had silenced the crowd. And since that time, the disciples sat locked behind doors in the silence that condemned them because life had been stripped of its meaning and of its purpose. You see, locked doors and dead hopes always create the place where fear holds one captive. And here's what it says. It says, Jesus stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Impressive, is it not? Didn't say he kicked the door in. Didn't say he knocked. Didn't say he picked the lock. It said he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Notice, they didn't open the door. He just appeared. And when he appeared, that's got to be a little shocking, friends. You've got to give me that one, right? His presence and his voice brought peace through his words. That's the power of Jesus in your life. He spent time showing them his wounds and showing them his hands and his side. He took time to love his disciples by answering their questions and calming their fears. And you can only imagine there were probably a few of those questions. You see, Jesus always answers our fears. He never leaves them unaddressed. He always answers our insecurities and He always answers our anxieties, not always with the answer that we presuppose or that we pursue, but rather with the peace that only He can bring. And friends, let me tell you from testimony after testimony after testimony, Jesus' peace is always better than anything else that I went looking for in my fear, in my questions, and in my insecurities. Have you ever asked a question where you were looking for something more than just the answer? Sure you have. We all have, haven't we? Why do we do that? Well, you see, we were created for more than just answers. Our mind is only a part of who we are. And an answer will only satisfy a part of what we're looking for. We were imaged for relationship with God. When God created us in Genesis 1 and 2, He designed us in a way to enjoy relationship with Him every day. And friends, we don't always know what we need or what we're looking for, but we always know when Jesus' absence is within us. Why? Because we were created for Him to inhabit us. And until He does, there is no rest there is no peace that lasts. You see, Jesus' presence changed the way the disciples felt. They were locked behind doors in fear. And all of a sudden, when he showed up, their fear turned to joy. 
When they saw Jesus, their fears were calmed and they were glad to be with him. You see, Jesus gives peace that is with them. Then Jesus tells them that just as the Father has sent me, he's now sending them. He he gives the Holy Spirit to them and commissions them to proclaim the forgiveness of sin. At that moment, friends, everything changed. Jesus answers fear with his presence and with purpose for your life, meaning, and he empowers his disciples to proclaim the forgiveness of sin. Now, let me explain this. What Jesus didn't say is that you are the authority as a disciple, and if you want to forgive somebody you can and if you don't it won't happen no what Jesus was saying to them is that I am the authority and that your role as a witness of me is to proclaim that by faith there is forgiveness for all who will believe and receive me but if you will not trust me and receive me there is no forgiveness outside of Jesus That's the message that he gave to them. And you might say, couldn't he have waited a few more minutes before he threw down the great commission on them? But I want you to know, friends, that when you experience the peace of God in your life, there's not a second that should be wasted but telling everyone whom which you come into contact with. Every person needs to know about the new life that is in Christ because they too are locked into their own fears, hidden in their own securities. And that leads me to this question today. Has fear, has insecurity ever become a prison for you? Maybe a situation or a circumstance in your life that produced such a great fear that caused you to question the very essence of your life. Most of us have at some level or another, have we not? No matter how big your fear, no matter how strong your anxiety, no matter how deep your worry, Jesus always brings peace that gives meaning and purpose. And then he gives us his power through his spirit to live in the life that he gives. See, friends, we may read verses 19 lightly, And we may dismiss the disciples' fear because it's not our immediate fear. We have a bad problem with that, don't we? If yours is mine, I don't have to, or excuse me, if yours isn't mine, I don't have to worry about it. I'll pray for you. That means stay beyond an arm's length away. I don't want to get your cooties. Right? Jesus doesn't do that. He always brings peace and he shows up. He shows up. No matter how many times you've locked the doors. And and look, some of you walked in today wondering if you would find out a little more about what Jesus is like. Here were his closest followers. How many of them betrayed him? How many of them betrayed him and didn't stay with him when he was crucified? Every one of them. So here we have an opportune time to have a little discussion. Hey fellas, hey ladies. When I was walking to the cross, where were you? Right? But Jesus didn't do that, did he? They're riddled in their fears and insecurities. And Jesus shows up in the room. And not once did he say, where were you? What he says is, here am I. Whoa. Whoa. That's powerful, friends. That's powerful. Jesus always brings peace. You see, friends, other people may not understand your fear. That creates a locked door or a prison in which you live. But that doesn't mean it's not real. But it also doesn't mean that Jesus can't come to you in the midst of your fear 
He will not condemn you, but only break through the barriers you've created and announce His peace is with you. Have you turned your fears towards Jesus for His peace? Are you still living under lockdown? Creating barriers to keep people out so you don't have to go out. I'm going to tell you, listen. You go, I've got so many barriers right now, Pastor. I couldn't unlock them and open them if I wanted to. It would take me the rest of my life. That's good because Jesus doesn't need you to. He shows up in the middle of them so that you can look at Him face to face. Eyeball to eyeball. Sinner to Savior. And He says, peace I bring to you. The resurrection changes the meaning and the purpose of life, friends. That we might enjoy Jesus. And that we might make Him known. Let me share a fourth change that the resurrection makes. Verses 24 to 29, look with me. Everybody wasn't in the room the first time. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, listen to this, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here's the fourth change that the resurrection makes, friends. Personal questions and doubts are not left unaddressed. You see, the first time Jesus entered the room, He brought peace to everybody that was there. But Thomas had been so hurt His pain was so deep that it caused him to forsake even his closest friends. And he went and found his own place to imprison himself. He went and found a place where he could be alone, isolated. His pain was so deep, he didn't even trust those who were closest to him in his life. And when he did absolve enough of the anger to look at their faces yet one more time, Eleven days after the death. Eight days after all of the others had been testifying that Jesus was alive. Thomas said, I can't believe you. You ever been at a place in your life where your pain, where your hurt was so deep and was so hard, was so, was so unbelievable to you, you couldn't believe anyone else could understand it. So you just shut them all out of your life. Even those who were closest to you. You just closed them off. And even when you did have another conversation with them, there were just barriers that you would not cross in the conversation. There were things you would not talk about. There were things you would not go, places you would not be with them, simply because the pain had hurt you to that extent. And you had said in your own mind, this is the way it's going to be, and it will never 
change. And then you set parameters that are so unbelievable, you don't conceive of how they could ever present the evidence to cause you to change. You see, pain and hurt always justify our isolation. Pain and hurt always rationalize what will convince us when we have no intention of considering any evidence that would convince us otherwise. And that's where Thomas was. There's always one doubter staggering behind. Thomas was his name in the New Testament. Maybe it's your name here today. And when Jesus comes into the room, when Jesus comes into the room, what does he say? Peace be with you. See, I think we can understand how Thomas felt. I think we can understand the place where Thomas was. For we can feel his isolation and we can feel his loneliness. And, and, and if you've ever had a pain that you didn't feel like others felt properly for you or you were hurt in such a way and all you could feel is no matter what they said, what it sounded like to you was what's wrong with you? Shouldn't you get over this? Shouldn't you move on? I mean, shouldn't you be okay already? That's what Thomas heard regardless of what they said. But, but watch this. Watch this. What happens when Thomas is in the room with them? The same thing that had happened eight days earlier. Jesus showed up and announced his peace. Did you miss what I just said? There was one person in the room who did not believe. One. And Jesus returned. To personally address their doubts. Jesus returned so that Thomas could put his fingers in his hand. So he could touch his side and see. You see, what Thomas had presented as evidence that was irrefutable and could never be presented. Jesus walked into the room and said, Thomas, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. One person. Is that one you? Did you come here today convinced there was nothing that God could say to you? But for the life of you, you have no idea why inside it just feels like it's beginning to erupt. And while your hardness is beginning to break open, it's scaring you to death. Because you've not been out from behind your barriers in years. You've created a place that you've become comfortable with. You hate it, but you're afraid to not be there. But you feel God rumbling something in you. Are you the one that he's come for today? To simply say this, that the resurrection changes everything. And whatever personal doubt you have, whatever personal fear has been imprisoning you, I'm here today to announce my peace. And listen, he may not answer every question to the T that you're looking for. But the promise he brings and the peace that he provides will be so much sweeter than the answer that you're looking for. Because your pain will be gone and your hurt will be relieved. That's what the resurrection does, friends. It changes the world. What question, what doubt, what pain or what hurt has caused you 
to become so hard towards Jesus that you've wanted nothing to do with it and you've drawn lines and you've built walls to keep him out so he wouldn't mess with you. He's here today to speak to you. He wants to address you personally because that's the way God relates to people in Jesus. He wants to tell you that he loves you and it might be my voice that you hear but I'm telling you, it's His voice that is speaking to you. He wants you to know He cares about you. He cares about what it was that hurt you. He cares about what it was that inflicted that pain on you. He cares about that place that you've hidden. And He wants you to know He's right there with you. And because of the resurrection, we know it's true. He's here with you today. The resurrection changes everything. As we experience Jesus personally and He addresses our questions and our doubts so we can believe. There's one final change I want you to see in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. The fifth change that we see because of the resurrection is this you can believe and receive. You can believe and receive. You see, John concludes his gospel account by sharing the purpose for which he received from Jesus. And he says this I wrote all of these things not because I love to keep a great diary, but because I want you to know. You can believe in Jesus and receive Him. I want to ask you today. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you considered His life? Scripture tells us He lived a perfect life. Not one sin was in Him. You know, so much so, he was so perfect that the religious leaders couldn't find anything wrong with him. They had to trump up false charges and accuse him. The political leaders of the day couldn't find anything wrong with him. Couldn't get him to stumble, couldn't trick him, couldn't lure him in. And so Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. I'll beat him for you, but I'm not going to kill him for you. And then, because of political pressure, he said, I still find no guilt in him, but okay, I'll kill him for you. Do you believe that? Now, I know many of you are sitting here today and you go, yes, I believe that, Pastor, I do. I, I believe that Jesus was God's Son and that He came and lived a perfect life. Do you believe His teachings? What He said? The, the way He said, blessed are you who suffer for my name's sake. And, 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 and how he, he taught with such authority, not just because he knew the Word, but as we come to later learn, because he was the Word, right? You believe his teachings and what you know of what he said to be true, not because of what you've heard, but because of what you've seen in the Bible. Do you believe his work? That when he hung on a cross for you, one person in the room, friends, When he hung on the cross, he was glad to go. He was glad to give his life for you. 
There's not once he said, I don't want to do this. One time he prayed to the Father, if there's any other way, I still want to do it. I just, this isn't necessarily my first choice. But he never said, I won't do it. He never said, no. When the Father said, go, Jesus was moving. He was walking to the cross for you. And he was raised up to die. He died for you, the one in the room. And when the tomb was empty, it was empty for you. And when he showed up in the room, not once, twice, when he showed you his side, and he offered his hand. He didn't just ask if you have intellectually confirmed that this is true. He said, have you relationally received what I've come to give you? Have you? That's what it means to worship the risen Lord Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to know God. Of all the concepts of Christianity that we have today, Many of them are blurred by this simple misunderstanding. It's not about what others do well or don't do well. It's simply about this, that Jesus rose from the dead. Because he did, everything changes. Has the presence and the peace and the reality of God's power through Jesus Christ changed everything in your life? And if it hasn't, I want to invite you not just to believe Him, but to receive Him today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we need You, and without You, our lives are hopelessly condemned in frustrations and in angst, but more eternally speaking, condemned to separation from You because of our sin. God, you've come to us. We didn't come to you. We showed up to a place this morning, but if you had not chosen to be here, we wouldn't be any closer to you here than we would be at any other place in the world. But because you're here today, we're with you. Lord, if there's one in the room right now that doesn't know you personally, would you just impress upon their heart your desire to love and care for them in a very personal way? to show them what eternal life looks like because the grave could not hold you because the resurrection has happened. Friends, if you know that today you need to pray and receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, might I just encourage you to pray a simple prayer like this in your heart to Him? Lord, I know that you've come, that you were sent from God That you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And that you rose again to bring eternal life with me. Come into my heart. Make me alive unto God. Put your spirit in me that I might live following you all of my days. Friend, if that's your prayer today, the Lord hears that prayer prayed from an honest heart. And he answers that prayer every time. 
you let us celebrate with you today? Just to encourage you, just to smile on you. At the end of the service, once we're finished singing, I'll be at the front. Another elder will be here. We would love to encourage you and to counsel you. Just, just to help you begin this new life of following Jesus. We invite you to come. Let's all stand together as we sing and respond to the Lord in worship.